All right, so what we want to do tonight is um, do part two of the history of the English Bible. Uh, if you didn't, weren't here for part one, uh, part one is online. It was two weeks ago, and I did get a PDF as well of the presentation loaded so you can get caught up uh, looking at that. So part one was really just look at the English Bible from Wycliffe to the King James Version. Today we're going to go from the King James Version to the Legacy Standard. And um, I, keep, I keep promising things I can't deliver on. So I told you we would dig into the legacy, but I'm going to have to bump that to part three. Right? That's just how some of my studies go. I just, it's just like a, a little wormhole. I get sucked in. And then and it's like, man, this is really interesting. So hopefully you'll think so too. Um, we'll get to the legacy, but we won't get to the details of it. All right, we'll do that um, uh, to give you an idea. So next, next Wednesday and next... Um, the following Wednesday, Scott will do the road trip for truth, so we'll be back in that the next two Wednesdays. So it'll be the Wednesday following that will be part three. Just to give you an idea. He and I are kind of tag teaming things um, on Wednesday, so let you know that. So this is what we're looking at. So we wanted to go from the King James version to the Legacy Standard, and and really, um, I'm not going to try to cover all the versions. There has been a plethora of English translations. And, and uh, probably in part three, I'll talk more about some of the more modern uh, translations. Well, one, the main ones I'm going to mention tonight, especially in probably the second half of the, of the presentation, are what are called the, kind of the Tyndale tradition, that they're faithful, they're reliable for the most part, um, and they would be classified in the Tyndale tradition. I mean, they're trying to, to adhere to the Word of God. They're, they're trying to help. English readers understand what the Word of God actually says, right? Some are better translations than others. They're not all equal, but they're all trying to do the same thing with and, and mostly following the same kind of translation philosophy. So in part three, give you a little preview, I'll, I'll talk about translation philosophy because there are different philosophies in translation and not all translations are good translations and they're on different places all the way from overly literalistic um, um, meaning so so woodenly literalistic that they're hard to read all the way to a paraphrase where you're not exactly sure whether that's the translator's ideas or whether it's God's word, right? So that's that's the spectrum that we'll look at next time. I got a little uh, chart to show you at the end. So let me see if I can get this working. There we go. So the basically the the King James. Um, was the king of Bibles for 250 years. And if you include even up to modern sales, um, the King James Version is still like the number one Bible out there as far as Bibles sold. Uh, keep in mind that they, even, they, even if they're advertised as 1611 King James, they're not really 1611 King James um, because all the Bibles took a, were updated. The first original 1611 King James had lots of mistakes in it. I know some people would have struggles learning that, but it did. And so they don't, they didn't want to keep printing those. So they corrected them. There's like anywhere between 20,000 to 70,000 corrections. Um, so somewhere in that range, right? So some of them were just small punctuation and some of it's spelling and things like that. There are a lot of changes. Um, so we're kind of going from, from the King James on up. And I'm going to spend a little time um, in a moment talking about some of the early American Bibles that um, really I, I hadn't learned much about and I have found very fascinating. 
1769, Dr. Benjamin Blaney completed his, his revision of the, the KJV Bible uh, using Dr. Samuel, Dr. Johnson's first edition of the 1755 printing of the Johnson Dictionary of the English Language. Now, what's, what's important is you're seeing a maturing of, the, of a language. Okay? There's actually a dictionary, proper spelling. You know, before this, it's, there's, you, you don't have it. And so as dictionaries, you're even going to see it um, in the, uh, oh yeah, please close that. Um, you're even going to see this even in, with American English. There's going to be a dictionary that comes down. It's going to help formalize some of the spellings and, and all that kind of stuff. So that, it's just a development of the language. So spelling, punctuation, grammar became standardized, making it possible to teach succeeding generations the fledgling languages establishment as an excellent spoken and written language communication for, for world. Ed, commerce, education, we see it today in, in the Lord's providence. Um, the Lord has caused really the English language to be um, an international language. There are more international speakers of English than there are native speakers of English. So that's how, that's how international English has become, but it, but it wasn't always that way. Um, Blaney's 1769 revised Oxford edition of the 1611 contains 20,000 spelling and punctuation changes, over 400 wording changes made to the original 1611 to 1611. And nearly all KJV Bibles published between 1769 and today have these changes. So, you know, at a very minimum, 20,000. And they're not major changes, some of them are just spelling but they are nonetheless changes from the 1611. And the only way to obtain a true unaltered 1611 is either to purchase a, an original pre-1769 printing or a less costly facsimile reproduction of the original. So this is, uh, KGB became the most printed book in the history of the world and the only book uh, with one billion copies in print. So it's, it, it really has reigned in a dominant uh, size. And as we talked about last time, it's kind of, Kind of ironic that so many um, ardent fundamentalists, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, I mean that in a good sense, they, they cling to the Word of God, yet they, they cling to a, a Bible that many consider to be a Catholic Bible, uh, not a Protestant Bible. The Protestant Bible was the Geneva Bible for many, many, many years. That was the Bible that flowed from the Reformation. So again, the, I'm, not, I'm not knocking the King James Version, it's a solid translation, okay? So you know, the original 1611 would be have much antiquated English that we would all have much difficulty trying to understand. So it's important that languages uh, continue to update. Let me see if I can get my screen to. I need to stop just a minute. I have notes and it's not showing my presentation notes. I'm gonna try again. There we go. Okay. All right, so what you see is a kind of a reproduction of the uh, King James 1611. So this is the super deluxe model that'll cost you just about $1,000 if you want a copy of that. So. How, you know, I don't know the dimensions on that. That one's big. Super deluxe, whatever that means. I'm not sure. All, all of this comes from greatsite.com. Um, so it's a Bible collectors um, 
So you can go there and, and, and they have um, a lot of stuff for sale. You can spend a lot of money there. And they also have some stuff and not so much. So it's all sorts of stuff. But um, just thought I'd throw that out there in case you get, uh, in, case you, in case you get, you know, you just want to get a piece of history, get a, get a Bible. $10,000. Yeah, exactly. So the first Bible printed in America was printed in 1661. And it was not an English Bible. Not an English Bible uh, or any other European language. It was uh, actually a language of Native Americans. Now, the English and European language Bibles would not be printed in America until the late 1700s. And the first Bible printed in America was a translation into Native uh, Algonquin uh, Indian language in 1663. John Eliot. How many of you have heard of John Eliot? I hadn't, but we all should have. All right. John Eliot entered the ministry in the, in the established Church of England, but then he immigrated to the United States. Um, and he, he became a Puritan, actually, under Thomas Hooker, and was greatly influenced, so became very, very solid. And he had a desire to reach the Native Americans, those that, at that time, they were called savages, um, and considered savages, but he wanted to reach them with the gospel. Um, John Eliot's ministry of the Native Americans was actually quite successful in the Lord's providence. He worked uh, in Boston for a year, established a church there, and in, while he was also pastoring the church in Boston, he also ministered to the Indians, and he would go, and he, he wanted to learn their language. So he had an Indian, actually, I think, come reside and live in his house and teach him the language. So he learned the language, and then he began translating the Bible. Um, from, from 1660, he was called the Apostle of the American Indian. He carried his work with the Indians parallel to his pastoral duties at Roxbury. Um, and Eliot was instrumental in organizing 15 Indian villages. So to try to, this is a time when there's a lot, a lot of strife between the cultures. So he, he helped them get land. He helped them build buildings. And they created these little villages that were just for the Indians so they could live peaceably and white men would not bother them. And that was quite quite successful. So there's 14 villages. Um, he he instituted them according to the pattern given in Exodus 18, just kind of delegating and, and elders. Interested um, interested neighboring pastors were encouraged to participate in regular instruction. And he trained others. He did some of the evangelization, but he trained Indian on how to evangelize and teach the Bible to their own culture. Um, so that, that was very interesting. And this is, this is a, a biography you can read online. Uh, there are hard copies probably still in existence, but The Life of John Eliot with an account of the early missionary efforts. So uh, you can read that uh, online um, at um, Boston University. So they have an archive of that. John, John Eliot's ministry of the Native Americans, even today there's, there's land markers that... Um, even in liberal uh, Massachusetts, there's still some markers of its great religious history. He brought cases to court to fight for Indian property rights, pleaded for clemency for convicted Indian prisoners, fought the selling of Indians into slavery. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of history there. They got, some of the Indians got accused of, of some things that they, it seems like they didn't do, but because of the animosity between the two cultures, some of the Indians were either sold into slavery or they were they were all taken from these towns and they were they were made to live on this island kind of about four or five miles out in the ocean in the bay away from the other cultures 
Um, so there's a lot of cruel and, and harsh things that were done, but John Elliot was right there with them. He was, he was, um, it is said that it was hard to tell who was more horror struck and over what was happening, the Indians or John Elliot. That's how much he cared for them. Um, and those hostilities uh, increased with uh, 1675 during King Philip's War. There's an Indian king named King Philip who um, was, was, you know, had, had enough, and he tried to, to, you know, basically uh, kind of retake Indian territory, and so that just kind of made things as far as worse as far as the Indians who were actually saved um, and following um, following the Lord. So John Elliot's ministry to the Algonquins, um, the Native American communicated almost exclusively through spoken language. And what little they had in writing was something like Egyptian hier hieroglyphics. So they didn't even have really an alphabet. So John Elliot learned their language, how it sounded, and, and basically wrote, wrote uh, letters, the English letters that correspond with that sound. So that the Indians could then, when they when he finished his Bible translation, they could read it without understanding English. So you understand he wasn't he wasn't writing English. He was phonetically writing their language, and he taught them how to what the letters represented, so that they could actually read their the Bible in their language, and then they could use that alphabet then to create other books. So actually, it's, it, he did quite a, quite a lot of work, quite a lot of work. Must have been a, a very brilliant man. His New Testament was issued in 1661, and the Old Testament followed in 1663. Um, and then they're all bound together as a Bible in 1663. So what you see here is a leaf from the Elliot Bible. So um, that that one page um, would cost you $2,000 to buy that. So it just shows you the collector's items. If you own one, you know that's good. And when I say a leaf, um, what they mean is the, the collector did not have a complete Bible. It's not as if they're tearing pages out of a complete Bible. It's that whatever they found, it was found incomplete uh, or unbound, you know, kind of falling apart. And so they sell them a uh, page at a time. It's called a leaf. The first English Bible printed in America was printed by Robert Atkin uh, in 1762, and it was a King James Version. Um, now, why... Just pause a minute. Why was it that there were no English versions translated earlier than this? Anybody have an idea? Think about U.S. history. What happened? Yeah, there was the, the British came. There was something called the Revolution, you know, the, the War of Independence. Right? So that date's significant because before that, it didn't make sense to print English Bibles in the United States because the Bibles could be printed much less expensively in England. And they were just simply imported. But then with the war, then there was an import tax, things got really expensive, and they said, we gotta start printing them ourselves. And, and keep in mind too that Bible printing has always been slightly different than book printing. It always takes, there's a different kind of paper and a different, almost a different kind of printing. Um, so, uh, you know, especially, especially today. Um, but anyway, it's kind of interesting that that it wasn't until the war happened that we actually started printing English Bibles in the United States. 
So Robert Atkins' uh, 1782 King James Version Bible was the only Bible ever authorized by the United States Congress. To that, to that date, it's still the only Bible. Congress declared, and I quote, they highly approve of the pious and laudable understanding of Mr. Atkins as subservient to the interest of religion, as well as an instance in the progress of, of arts in this country. In addition, our founders continued, they recommended this edition to the, of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. So he was commended by President George Washington for providing Americans with Bibles during the embargo of imported goods during the Revolutionary War. And, and it's interesting, today there's an organization uh, called the American Bible Project that put prints authentic reproductions of this Bible and they donate them to history departments at schools. You can legally get them into schools because they're part of history and they're authorized by Congress. So they're using this Bible to, to try to teach people about not only history, but about the Bible. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. Find out more there, I give you the website, the, the AmericanBible.org. So I don't know anything about the organization. I'm not endorsing them. I'm just telling you what, what they're doing. The first non-King James Version Bible printed in America was printed by Matthew Carey, a journalist in Ireland who uh, attacked the English government for the persecution of Irish Catholics. After being apprehended and serving a one-month jail servants, he fled England and arrived in America in 1784. In 1789, uh, he announced plans to publish a Roman Catholic Douay Rem's version of the English Bible. We talked about that last time. Uh, that, that finally the, the Catholics uh, realized they could not stop the English Bible translation, so they jumped in the market. Um, and that, that one was the problem with that one is it was translated from the Latin Vulgate and not from the Greek and the Hebrew. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a great translation. But he said he would print that if he could get 400 prepaid subscribers and secured 400. 71. So he delivered to his subscribers. Um, as there was very little demand for Roman Catholic scriptures in colonial America, it is unlikely that more than about 500 copies of the Matthew Carey Bible were ever printed, making it rare. So if you, if you find a copy, then keep it. Don't give it away. It, it, it's worth quite a bit of money. I don't know what the price is because they, they don't have them for sale. They're quite a collector's item. Um, now, it, in, it's a kind of interesting in the, um, um, Isaac Collins was the next printer of a, of a Bible in 1791. Uh, he printed a King James Version by, uh, uh, he's a native, he was a Quaker, a native of Delaware, and he later moved to Trenton, New Jersey, where he was the printer for the state of New Jersey. And in 1789, Collins announced his proposal to publish the entire Bible if he could attain a 25% deposit of at least 3,000 subscribers. Now, what I didn't find out in history is how much that actually was for them. Because these things probably weren't that cheap. It wasn't like something everybody could do. So he, he produced 5,000 copies of the first Bible printed in New Jersey. And due to its fairly large size and clear type, um, unlike the coat pocket American Bibles and New Testaments that had come before it, the 1791 Isaac Collins Bible became known as the first family Bible printed in America. And the, the 1791 Isaac Collins Bible served as a standard of excellence and a prototype for many American Bibles for the next 110 years. So what's interesting about this Bible is Collins boldly admitted or omitted the dedication to King James. So it was a, was a King James version, 
But that dedication in the first part, they omitted it. They didn't think it was appropriate, um, given all that had gone on um, with the Revolutionary War and all that. Um, the Isaac Collins Bible was also uh, famous for its amazing level of textual accuracy. So Collins claims to have had his children proofread the entire text 11 times. So he wanted it to be really accurate. So those of you who had to proofread something, think about rereading or proofreading the Bible 11 times. That's not an easy task. And there are fewer than 100 known copies of this Bible in existence uh, today. So to get one of these, you're probably looking at uh, $6,000 or $7,000 uh, value. Then there's the 1791 Isaiah Thomas Folio Bible. So Isaiah Thomas is one of the most successful printers in colonial America. He published a newspaper called the Massachusetts Spy, in which he supported the cause of the colonists. During the Revolutionary War, Thomas moved his presses to Worcester, Massachusetts. And there in 1791, Isaiah Thomas published the first illustrated Bibles printed in America. Now, the very curious thing about the Isaiah Thomas Bible is that they are technically the first illustrated Bible in America, but it's very difficult to find one of those because the illustrations doubled the cost of the Bible. So it was optional whether you had the illustrations or not had the illustrations. So most people purchased it without the illustrations. So thus again, um, collectors highly value those, those actually that they can find with the illustrations. So this image here is, is um, from that Bible, Genesis uh, 22. So uh, first illustrated Bible. Then other, other Bibles of colonial America, in 1796, Jacob Berriman of Philadelphia published what may be called the single volume illustrated tall folio. And the, and the language there, folio, you typically means that it's, it's larger than, than uh, typical size at the time. Uh, it was long, it's been long prized by collectors of uh, colonial American Bibles. Uh, and that's what you see the folio of the prophet uh, Elias uh, carried up, uh, Eli Elijah carried up to heaven. Um, in November of 1798, John Thompson of Philadelphia produced the first Bible ever to be hot-pressed in, in America. It was also a King James Version. This printing technique helped to sear the ink clearly into the paper with heat, and the Thompson hot-press Bible remains an extremely rare collector's item. Then there's the 1808 Thompson Bible. Charles Thompson was fascinated by the early Greek Manuscripts of the New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. He produced the first translation of the Septuagint in English. Um, he uh, also produced the first modern English translation of the New Testament in the Western Hemisphere and spent 20 years perfecting his translation. And then on September 12, 1808, in Philadelphia, Jane Aitken published Charles Thompson's translation of the Bible into modern English in four volumes, making her the first woman to ever print a Bible and the first publisher of a modern English Bible since the King James Version two centuries earlier. So there you see uh, some Thompson Bibles that'll set you back about $14,000. So uh, Jane Aiken was the daughter of the famous Robert Aiken, who was also a publisher of Bible that we talked about just a few moments ago. And it's kind of interesting that, that Charles Thompson was actually the Secretary to the United States Congress uh, from 1774 to 1789, and he resigned to pursue his uh, 
his scholarly studies and translating the Bible. Some other American Bible firsts. So there's lots we could go into, but just going to give a summary. So as America entered the 1800s, there were many more biblical printing milestones, including in 1800, the first Greek New Testament printed in America. In 1814, the first Hebrew Bible printed in America. 1815, the first French Bible. In 1824, the first Spanish Bible printed in America. Then 1883, you get Noah Webster's Modern English Bible. So it's kind of interesting with Noah Webster um, produced a dictionary, which is by his name that we still use today. But you wouldn't recognize it, uh, or the company, I'm sure. So John Webster was a, was a, a Christian. Um, but shortly after he produced his dictionary, he produced his Bible translation. Um, so that in 1833. But the public generally was already getting very loyal to the King James Version, so the kind of his translation never really took off. Uh, there was not much of a competition. In 1842, the first Bible printed for the blind. And then in 1843 and 46, they had several lavish uh, illustrated American Bibles come out. Now, remember, you have the King James Version, 1611. They kind of like majorly updated uh, in the 1700s. And then that, that carries through. So by 1885, that translation is, is pressing 150 years old and 200, you could say, make a case of 200 years old. English language continues to change. So there was a need to update it. So the English um, decided to revise uh, that and produce what's called the English Revised Version. And it would be the first English language Bible to gain popular acceptance uh, as a post-King James Version modern English Bible. Um, it's, it's still considered, again, in the, the Tyndale tradition of English translations. The widespread popularity of this modern English translation brought with it another curious characteristic, the absence of the 14 apocryphal books. Okay, so they are no longer there. And um, up until the 1880s, every Protestant Bible, and um, not just the Catholic Bibles, had, had 80 books, not the 66. So the other intertestamental books written hundreds of years before Christ are called the Apocrypha um, were part of virtually every printing of the Tyndale's Matthew Bible, the Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Protestant Geneva Bible, and the King James Bible until the removal in the 1880s. So we'll talk, <coughs> excuse me, we'll talk a little bit about the Apocrypha in a minute. Now, do people like change? Lots of lots of times, you know, like when the, when the change was, let's have the Bible in our language. They loved it, but people are creatures of habit, and once they have it. They kind of struggle with change. So there were times where the English, after the English Revised Version uh, came out, people struggled with some of the differences. And so, you know, we're no different today than people were uh, in Spurgeon's day. So Charles Spurgeon began using the, the English Revised Version um, and addressed his, uh, you know, the, his church who, and a lot of many people came with emotional, emotion-laden concerns. And now, what's read in red there is directly a direct quote from him. Concerning the fact of the difference between the revised and the authorized versions, I would say that no Baptist should ever feel any honest attempt to produce the correct text, should ever, sorry, should ever fear any honest attempt to produce the correct text and an accurate interpretation of the Old and New Testament. For many years, Baptists have insisted upon 
upon it that we ought to have the Word of God translated in the best possible manner, whether it would confirm certain religious opinions and practices or work against them. All we want is the exact mind of the Spirit as far as we can get it. Beyond all other Christians, we are concerned in this, seeing that we have no other sacred book, we have no prayer book or binding creed or authoritative minutes of conference. We have nothing but the Bible, and we would have it as we would have that as pure as we ever can get it. By the best and most honest scholarship that can be found, we desire that the common version may be purged of every blunder of transcribers or addition of human ignorance or human knowledge so that the word of God may come to us as it came from his own hand. So his really plea is that, is that let the scholars do their work. Let them be faithful. There, there, are, there have been progress, and, and, you, and even then they were seeing progress in translation in um, the manuscripts given, in the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts. So he's saying, don't, don't, don't freeze the translation. Let it improve. Let's let it get better. And let's use that. Because we, if, you know, if there's any, any human error in the older translation, well, we want to get that out of that. Right? So that's really his plea. Now let's talk a little bit about the, excuse me, the Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha um, are, are those books that were removed. Right? So the, the canon is an officially um, accepted list of books. And, and the canon was determined by God and discovered by man. It's a different approach than the Catholic Church would tell you. So the Catholic Church claims it has that he it was given the authority to determine what's canon and what's not. I would just say that, that the church never uh, establishes the canon. God establishes the canon. All we can do is identify, we can affirm whether it's part of the canon or not. Right, so the, the Roman Catholic Bible contains not only the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, but also the apocryphal books, uh, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, and Maccabees. And there's multiple chapters of Maccabees, like um, Chronicles, right, Kings in, in the Bible. So problems with the Apocrypha. Number one, they contain historical and geographical errors, thus showing that they're not inspired. Two, they teach doctrines that are variants with the other parts of Scripture. So, for example, 2 Maccabees teaches the efficacy of prayers and offerings for the dead. Ecclesiasticus teaches almsgiving, makes atonement for sin, and justifies cruelty to slaves. So there, there are multiple problems with the Apocrypha. Um, so most significantly, Christ and the apostles never quote from the Apocrypha. They quote lots from the Old Testament, but not at all uh, from the Apocrypha. And, and furthermore, they were never included in the Jewish canon. So if you, if you study those that study the history of the Jewish scriptures, the Apocrypha were never part of that. They became part when they translated scriptures into, into Greek. So that's the Septuagint. So the Septuagint includes these, but not the Hebrew scriptures. So these are written, these are the inter, what we call intertestamental books. So they're written um, after the, the, we call the 400 silent years, from Malachi to Matthew. There's nothing in your book. That's where these would fit in in a Catholic Bible. Kind of interesting, one of, um, so Jerome, um, you have the, if you, if you study church history, you have Augustine and Jerome taking 
two different positions on the Apocrypha. Augustine considered these as scripture. Jerome said, well, there's some good things there, but they're not inspired. He didn't see them as scripture. So he didn't, he, he, he didn't see that they were bad, but he also didn't see that they were scripture. So if we're going to fast forward a little bit, one of Jerome's followers, Nicholas of Lyria, influenced the well-known reformer Martin Luther. And so hence when Martin Luther is dealing with all this doctrine of solo scriptura and and all this is all that's going on in the battle of the Reformation. He had to grapple with what do I do with these, with the apocrypha, with the with what some people can be scriptures, and if you believe those scriptures, they're at odds doctrinally with other parts of the scriptures. Which one of the rules of Bible interpretation is is scripture is never going to contradict scripture if we interpret it correctly. So anyway. Fast forward, he, he decides, even Luther decides that they're not scripture, but they're not, he, you know, he, he said they're worth reading. Um, he, he did not like remove them um, totally, but he said they're not scripture. And Calvin kind of followed suit with that. Um, in fact, Luther said this, he said, these are the books that though not esteemed like holy scriptures are still both useful and good to read. And Calvin took much the same approach with the Apocrypha. Didn't remove them. Like I said, the Geneva Bible had them in there, but they didn't consider them to be Scripture. So um, the Westminster Confession especially relegates the Apocrypha's usefulness to that of other human writings. So again, not Scripture. They would see them as helpful, helping understand history. And that's basically what, what all the slide says. From a historical standpoint, the Apocrypha sheds light on two monumental events in the Second Temple Judaism, so the 400 silent years, the Hellenization crisis, and the Maccabean Revolt. So the Maccabean Revolt is when the Jews revolted against the Romans, and um, it tells us a lot of the history. It helps you understand why there was such animosity between the Romans and the Jews, even in Jesus' day. So all that, all that is helpful. But again, it's not, not Scripture. The Hellenization also helps us understand... Um, uh, basically, the spread of really the, the, the Greek language and the cultures, um, so much so that by Jesus' day, the Jews don't even speak Hebrew. So they're speaking some Aramaic and even Greek in many cases. So um, it helps us understand that. So all, all that to say is the Apocrypha it is something that you, you, you can read it for yourself. You can look it up online. But it, it, it's not Scripture. And... Uh, but it does contain some things that are helpful to those who are trying to understand the history of that intertestamental period. Keep in mind, there are a lot of, if you broaden it out, there are a lot of books out there that claim to be scripture. So this is a, this is just a small snapshot that actually got included in, in the Latin Vulgate and kind of propagated through many different translations. Even though they saw it not as scripture, like Luther and, and Calvin, they were very hesitant to totally remove it, but they would say it's not scripture. But there are many other books, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament times, that where people claimed something was scripture, but it turned out not to be so. Right. Yes, question. Are there other historical books that agree with the apocryphal historical accounts? I think so. You're asking if there are other historical like yeah. books that would agree with what the Apocrypha is written? Yes. But we don't have a lot of sources from that time period. So that's why it's so helpful, because there's just, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot that survived. 
as far as what was recorded, even the means for recording things like that. Um, we just don't have a lot of information. So that's why it's so valuable. But I, I'm pretty sure there is. I'm not an expert on that time period. So kind of fast, fast forward. Um, you had the, the English revised version. Then look at the, um, when basically the English revised version didn't go so well with that name in America because of the revolution. And so they just kind of rebranded it. Um, and also there are British sayings that, that are in the English revised version that don't communicate well in American English. So, so that they just, they changed a few things, uh, but it's essentially the very, essentially it's the same translation. I shouldn't say it's the same, but it's very close. Um, it was widely accepted and embraced uh, by churches throughout America, and for many decades, it, for many decades, it was the leading modern English version of the Bible. Uh, again, it's in the Tyndale tradition of English translations. Um, in a book written around 1967, Dr. Richard Clearwaters, and I didn't write this, I found this and, and read it. I don't really don't know this gentleman, but he is considered to be uh, the fundamentalist uh, fundamentalist. So, and he, he speaks very highly of the American Standard Version. Uh, he says this, he says, Honesty compels us to cite the 1901 American Revised as the best English version of the original languages, which places us in a position 290 years ahead of those who are still weighing the King James of 1611 for demerits. We know of no fundamentalists that claim the King James is the best English translation. Those in the mainstream of fundamentalism all claim the American Revised of 1901 is the best English translation. By my, how times change. I don't think there are any fundamentalists saying that these days. Um, but that's okay. This is a copy. But all I have to say is the American Standard Version, if you could find one to read it, you could find them online. Like if you have logos or something, you can get the text and read it. it, it, it it's uh, archaic, but it's one of the most, still today, it's one of the most literal English translations that you can find. So nothing has nothing has topped it. Again, it has archaic English, but it, as far as a word-for-word -word translation, it's one of the most literal. <coughs> then in 1952, you have the Revised Standard Version. So again, the uh, ASV, the copyright on that, um, transferred over to the International Council of Religious Education the, and the, the, there was an intent to revise the, the American Standard Version, and that, that happened during the Depression, so that kind of slowed things down, so that Bible translation didn't actually happen. It didn't actually start until 1937, and it actually didn't get completed until 1952. So the translators were only trying to revise the American Standard Version. They weren't trying to create a totally different um, translation. And translation forms the general pattern and at the time the exact wording of Tyndale's work. And you can see it, it was subsequently revised in multiple years. Kind of interesting that it was also printed as the Oxford uh, Annotated Bible in, 16, in 1962, which was the first Protestant uh, annotated uh, edition to receive official approval by the Roman Catholic Church. And then there was uh, later, there was an ecumenical version and the expanded New Oxford Annotated Bible with Apocrypha uh, was published in 1977, marking the first time since the Reformation that the Catholics, that the Protestants, 
and the Eastern Church all agreed to use the same Bible. And that was the Bible pictured there, the very ecumenical version, and hence had some doctrinal compromises that snuck into Presbyterian. Um, then in 1971, you have the New American Standard Bible. The Lockman Foundation undertook a revision of the American Standard Version, and then really in largely measure because the other one was so doctrinally compromised. Um, the New Testament was completed in 1963, the entire Bible in 1971. Um, and the New American Standard Bible is considered, still considered um, nearly by all evangelical Christian scholars and translators today as the most accurate word-for-word -word translation of the original Greek and Hebrew in the modern English language. <coughs> um, it's because it is because it is more word for word. It's also a little harder to read, and so it didn't take off with great popularity. Um, and it seems like the Lockman Foundation is gifted in many things, but marketing is not one of them. And so um, it never really took off. And so, uh, but the New America Standard Bible was updated in 1977, 95, and 20, 2020 for this recently. And we'll we'll um, we'll talk more about. Especially the 95 and the 2020 update um, the next time. So, but it, but a very a very trustworthy translation. So, 1982, you had the New King James Version. So the Thomas Nelson Publishers produced what they call the New King James Version. So they wanted to update it. They wanted to get rid of the these and the vowels. Um, and it turns out when they first did it, they didn't make enough changes to actually claim that it was a new translation and hence own the copyright. So they made some other, they made enough changes where they could actually own the copyright to the New Americans, uh, to the New King James Version. Because keep in mind, the King James Version was copyrighted in England, but that copyright didn't apply in America. So that's why so many people could print New King James or King James Version Bibles without worrying about the copyright. Right? So it was uh, back before the day of international trade laws and all that kind of stuff. So they just, we just, the Americans just did it. And we just, stole the translation and used it, but um, couldn't do that with the New King James unless they made enough changes. So it's interesting, the MacArthur Study Bible was launched using the New King James Version text in 1997. And I always wondered why, why they did that, because MacArthur at the time preached from the New American Standard Bible, um, and it really came down to a marketing decision. The New King James Version, although it never, never got as popular as the King James Version, the New King James Version had more market share than the New American Standard Bible. And so they wanted to market it to the most number of people possible to start with. So now you can get it in the New American Standard, and you can get it in the ESV, which we'll talk about here in a minute. You can get it in various translations. 1989, you had the revised, the new revised Standard Version. They just kind of keep rolling along. Um, and again, this one is produced by the National Council of Churches of, of Christ. Um, anytime, anytime you have that National Council of Churches, you have to think there's there's a broad movement to try to to try to bring some doctrinal what what they see is their doctrinal perspective to it, and, and that's what happens. So um, this retains some of the same theological problems of the of the RSV, um, which made it of limited use to those holding conservative doctrine. And that comes from uh, chapter four of How to Choose a Bible Version by Dr. Robert Thomas. So it's a very beautiful book. I don't know if it's still in print or not. I've got a copy of it up here, but kind of walks you through how to, how to choose a, a Bible uh, version. 
And then in 1995, the NASB update um, kind of refined some of the differences between the ancient languages and current English by removing the old archaic English, such as these and thou's, thy's and thou's. Um, the sentences with and, lots of times there's uh, words you'll see in the ASV and the original 19, uh, original ni uh, 1977 version of the NASB that those ands or the sentence begins with an and, that, that's removed. Um, that does represent the Greek or the Hebrew, but they're removing it because in English we, we don't really start sentences that way. So they're just, they're just kind of going through with that um, punctuation, paragraphing were formatted. Um, and in Dr. Thomas's opinion, the updated edition is not as literal a translation as the original NASB. Now he might be a little biased because he was on the translation committee for the 1977 version. Um, so just take that with a grain of salt. He's a wise man. He helped. He taught uh, John MacArthur Greek. He taught at the Master Seminary when I was still there. So he taught a long, long time. Very knowledgeable, very smart man. So my guess is he's right, but I'm just saying he might be biased. So. And then you have the 2001 English Standard Version. So Crossway revised the RSV to create a, a new word-for-word -word or essentially literal translation. Many faithful pastors, guys that at least at least at that time, at least the ones named up here were faithful, I think still are faithful. Um, they were kind of pushed behind it. In some cases, they were actually participated in the translation. I think J.I. Packer had, uh, was on that committee that actually oversaw the translation. So it was, it tried to bridge the gap between um, the NIV, which we haven't talked about, I'll talk more about it next time because it doesn't fall in the Tyndale kind of Tyndale traditional uh, path or tradition of translation. But tried to bridge the gap of the readability of the new international version, and then the the faithfulness of the New American Standard Bible, which was considered to be kind of woodenly literalistic in places, so it didn't doesn't didn't read as well. It was updated in 2007, 2011, 2016. Interesting. In 2016, they said, we're done. The translation committee voted to freeze the translation. It's just complete. It's done. And there was such an outcry from people that said, how can you do this? English languages continue to change that they reversed their decision. <laughs> so, so you'll still see updates that will continue to be updates. It's kind of interesting that the Crossway has granted certain... Um, denominations rights to use the translation so there's actually although the ESV is considered was translated only by evangelicals it is now used by Catholics there's a there's an ESV Catholic version they've uh, adopted and changed some of the passages according to fit their doctrine um, and there's also a, an Anglican version so an ESV um, CE and an ESV AE The, the English Standard Version is a pretty good translation. That's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't know the question. The, the question was, you know, between the re revisions, the original 2001 versus 2007, 2011, 2016, um, is any one of those better than another? I don't know the answer to that. I'll try to try to find out, but I don't know if there's a would be a good answer. Crossway has done a really good job marketing the ESV, and so you can find it in anything you want to. They put out a study Bible, which I think is pretty helpful, uh, and then they've got just whatever kind of Bible you want. They, they have a journaling Bible, um, 
you know, glow in the dark Bible. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I mean, they just have so many versions of the ESV out there. But it is a faithful translation. So many, many guys, even the Master Seminary, will preach from from the ESV. I, I do not, but there are guys that do that. Do you have a question, Michael? Oh, 2016. Yeah, <laughs> it's the complete one. Oh, okay. Yeah, you got a 2016. So it's for a little while, and I don't know where they marked this, but for a while they were saying the 2016. They were calling it the complete um, ESV, and they, of course, when they reversed their decision, they had to stop calling it that. So. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Then there's the 2020 NASB update, um, and I'm just presenting here what really is on their website. So um, I'll, I'll talk some next time about pluses and minuses. Right? I'm just stating their claims. The NASB 2020 remains faithful, um, maintains faithful accuracy of the original text, and modernizes the English so that it is properly understood by readers most familiar with modern English language standards. And it's still considered to be in the Tyndale tradition of English translations. The changes, uh, kind of in summary fashion, this is from their website, an attempt to use gender-accurate language, um, like to specifically include women, if it was indisputable that the original audience would have understood the text to mean women were in fact included, even though the Greek word or the Hebrew word, it would be a male term. If the context indicates that it applies to both, they update it. They use let's for let us, which is not a big big change. Um, um, updated uh, textual basis. That's probably more of a big deal. I'll talk in later. Each one of the English translations that we've talked about has a, um, a Greek or Hebrew text behind it. Well, it has it both behind it. And, and sometimes there's more than one Greek text. So there's, there's things that significantly happened, I didn't bring in here, but about the 1950s, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. So a whole other interesting story to themselves. But the Dead Sea Scrolls helped shine some light on Greek manuscripts and Hebrew manuscripts, helping us to understand what were the older, more accurate uh, manuscripts to use in Bible translation. So that's, that's very significant. That impacts our English Bibles. Why, it's why our English Bible today, um, like an ESV, uh, I'd say NASB 95, uh, Legacy, why they are more accurate than the 1611 King James Version. So even though that King James Version is more poetic in that sense, the Bibles that we have today are more accurate to what God actually said. And that, that's a good thing. That's because of the of this Dead Sea Scrolls, in part, and other other discoveries made with uh, manuscripts as we just as archaeologists discover these manuscripts. Another change was the, the most of the bracketed text, the footnotes. So if you ever notice the ending of Mark, uh, I think it's uh, John eight. There's certain certain portions where it's just. There's a bracket that's included, but it says most manuscripts don't contain this text, so they take that and they move it to a footnote. That's probably the biggest notice, noticeable change. Um, that's, that's really easy to notice. And then the 2020-21, uh, I think it's actually 20. Is when it, 2020, I think I got a mistake in there. Um, but maybe 2021. I'm, but it was completed by the Master Seminary in part because of the disappointment 
um, that that uh, Pastor MacArthur and other uh, other scholars at the Master Seminary saw with the 2020 NASB. They just saw some things that they were not pleased with. So that began, and and they wanted to be able to produce a translation. Excuse me, produce a translation um, that actually translated some words accurately that are, that haven't been in the English language, like "dulos" is slave. And I'll mention some other things, some other positive things. I think with the legacy next time, um, but it is in the NASB um, kind of uh, family. In fact, Lockman is so much like NASB, uh, NASB that Lockman owns technically owns the the rights to the Legacy Standard Bible. They're working in partnership with the Master Seminary. They granted them the rights to use the 95 NASB as a basis of translation. So it's all done in agreement. But it's um, it's truly designed, the Legacy Standard Bible is truly designed to be that legacy. And it's not, um, some people say, well, is this MacArthur leaving his legacy? No, no that, that's, that's not why they picked the legacy name. So all that to say, we'll talk more about the Legacy Bible next time and you can't read this but you see you see that all I want you to get is the line so beyond the original languages when they were given like the church collected the Paul's letters they they copied them and they spread them around church to church so you have multiple copies of the scriptures being made and spread around but what you see here is pretty much just Latin Vulgate. For a thousand years, there's only one version of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, and you don't speak or read Latin if you're the common person. It's just the language of the scholars and of the elite. So notice that versus this next chart. Again, the print's so small, you can't read it all, and I'm not going to take time to read all through it. I just want you to see the big picture the first translation, the far left, where the line's still kind of solid, that's Tyndale. Kind of where we, uh, it's where we started. Wycliffe, I'm sorry, Wycliffe. His first translation. Remember, he did his by hand. He translated the whole Bible by hand before printing. Okay? And then, then, you've got, then you've got Wycliffe. And then it just starts kind of multiplying. And then towards the, if you follow the line to the right, you've got um, where it gets dark gray. And then it pops up, and that's the more modern period. And they just kind of expanded the, the graph there to show you. And you can see in our own time just the multiplication of trains. These are, these are just English translations. These are, don't cover all the other translations all over the world. These are just English translations. And it doesn't cover the stuff that's been done more recently um, in 20, because it ends in, in 2020. But I just want you to see the, the nearly... Um, the multiplication of, of translations that we have. Now, some of these are, I would argue, are not so great. Uh, some of them are paraphrased. Um, some of them are good and faithful. So but all, all I want us to see that is just the multiplication, right? Little did uh, Wycliffe know what he was setting in motion when he did that first English translation. So kind of wrapping up, I, I want to just not give you a lecture and facts, but things to take away. So the thing, some things to take away, I'm sure there are more, this is not exhaustive, but, but thank God, thank our Lord God for giving us 
faithful translations. I mean, there's still people today, alive today, who don't have the Bible in their mother tongue. And, and we have a multitude, really, a, a plethora of, of faithful translations, at, at least a half dozen that I would say I could preach from, for sure, that are so faithful. Um, you know, and this took hours by Christian Christians who devoted their talents and skills. They learned the languages and they did the work. They invested. Yes, I know printing companies have made money off of it. I understand that. There's some financial behind that. But it did take sacrifice for people to get the ball rolling and, and to stay involved so that these publishing companies don't ruin the translation. Keep them honest. Because um, so, so many of the publishing companies are owned by... Um, secular organizations at this point. So, and there are actually very few, kind of reversal of history, there's actually very few uh, printers that can print Bibles in America. So we've kind of lost that technology. So um, legacy standard Bibles are mostly printed in Europe, um, in South Korea at this, at this stage. So uh, that's where most of them are, are printed, just because we don't have the, I, I think there's one publisher in the United States that still has the ability to print Bibles but because the paper's so thin, uh, printing is different, the technology is different, so it's not like printing uh, money. Everybody went originally to China. A lot of the Bibles are printed in China. If you pick up even a MacArthur Study Bible, they're printed in China. So most of the Bible printing these days is done in China. Isn't that ironic? A country that doesn't have the Word of God is printing the Word of God. So it's all about money. It's uh, most of it. So maybe God will use that as providence to give people in China that know English some of the Word of God there. So, but uh, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a healthy thing for us in the standpoint of having ability to print Bibles in, in the United States. Because of the multitude of there things. More that, Bibles than bullets. There are more Bibles and than bullets. Yeah. yeah, that's right. The other thing to do is just thank God for the many study tools in our language. We've only talked about Bibles, but there's study Bibles and electronics and just there's just so many things that God has given us to study His Word and to understand His Word. The other thing I'd say is kind of take away from remember Spurgeon's quote that I read. Yeah, don't be bothered by new English translations. I mean, I know it's difficult to change. And especially if you've got God's Word memorized, you've memorized it in a certain version. And if you had a different version, you know, it kind of messes all that up. I'm not saying you have to change. I'm saying don't be bothered by it. As we continue to, to learn and more about the ancient manuscripts and, and learn about them, it's going, the text is going to improve. And English language is going to continue to change. It just is. And so there is no such thing as kind of a frozen Bible. You can't just lay it down and say, this is, this is it. Because language just continues to change. Now, God's word, what he said, doesn't change at all. You know, what we want to do is faithfully communicate that to, to each subsequent generation as those languages change. And then something I said last time was, is just don't quench the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Pick up your Bible. Use it. You know, the Holy Spirit will work in your life. And the, one of the main tools that he uses, it's not his only tool, but one of his main tools is the Scriptures. Read it. Study it. Meditate upon it. 
and, and memorize it even. Right? So the Word of God is in you, and the Holy Spirit can use that to, to change you and transform you to be more like Christ. Right? That is the primary tool that He uses to, to change you. And lots of times when something's common, like the Word of God, it's easy to find it. It's common, right? We take it for granted, or we don't read it, or our schedules get busy. And so it's just an exhortation, a reminder to keep reading, be persistent, value that. Uh, remember the people that, that died uh, to give us our Bibles. And we think of John Wycliffe, and we think of all those, um, you know, in that Tyndale, and and. But then there, but there are so many other nameless ones. I don't know their names, but I know for Tyndale to get his Bibles printed, to get him brought from the printing house to the shipyard, all the while while the king's henchmen are looking for him, all that had to be done in secret. For you know sailors to take that contraband onto their ship, risking seizure by the British government to get it to England. And all the people that risk their lives to, to buy those Bibles and distribute them, even just having been caught with a copy of that, they, they, that was at the risk of their life. Right? So it was at the risk of your life if you were to teach your children the Lord's Prayer in English during those times. And there's just such a tradition, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget the high price that was paid for us to have the Bibles that we have right now. And you could say, to a certain extent, to whom much is given, much is required. And I, and I think our country is entering a time when, when much is going to be required of those who want to be faithful. So the only way we're going to be faithful is if we cling to God's word and we hold to it and follow it. So, you know, what, what value do you place on the word of God? And the question stands, if it were outlawed, I know that seems inconceivable right now, but if it were outlawed, would you risk your life to have a copy of it? Good, good question to, to think about. Next time, we're going to talk about the translation continuum, right? meaning word for word, thought for thought. Um, we'll talk about not all these versions. I won't bore you with all of them, but we'll talk about some of the major ones and then leading up to the to the legacy. Legacy is not listed there, but it would be near the New American Standard Bible on the left. So lots of lots of translations. Well, let me let me close here, and then if you have any questions, feel free to come up and ask me afterwards. Our Lord, we do thank you for giving us uh, your Word and your Word in a language and so many translations. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, help us to be good stewards of what you have given to us. Help us to, to go and encourage one another and just to be faithful stewards of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.